Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Denise Von Glan, author of Libby Larson, Composing an American Life, published in 2017 by University of Illinois Press. Libby Larson is an unusual composer in many ways. She's a woman, she does not have an academic appointment, and she's been extraordinarily successful without other types of institutional or commercial support that is generally required for an artist to make it in today's classical music scene. Born in Delaware in 1950, Larson moved to Minneapolis when she was a young child and has made her home there ever since, resisting the pressure to move to New York, where most young composers are told they must live in order to be relevant in classical music. She's composed hundreds of pieces of music during her career, including 11 operas and works that range from large orchestral works to intimate chamber compositions. Her music defies easy description, as she's been influenced by so many different types of music, from boogie-woogie to contemporary art music. But in all things, she seeks to touch her listeners, breaking with the conventional wisdom of the Academy when she was a student in the 1970s that valued difficult, dissonant music and scorned more accessible compositions. Dr. Von Glan's biography is divided into chapters organized by the most important influences on Larson's life in music, family, religion, nature, the academy, gender, technology, and her collaborations. This unusual approach allows Von Glan to pair an exploration of Larson's biography with analyses of some of her major compositions. I'm so happy to talk to you today about this fascinating book. Welcome, Dr. Von Glan. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Denise Von Glan, author of Libby Larson, Composing an American Life. So happy to have you here, Dr. Von Glan. Welcome. Hi, Kristen. It's nice to be here. Please just call me Denise. <laughs> of course. Um, it's. I think it's a little unusual to see a... Um, a biography of a living composer, as of course Libby Larson is still uh, with us. And I was wondering how you got uh, started on this particular biography project. This project has a very long gestation, and it goes back to a previous book that I published, one called Music and the Skillful Listener, American Women Compose the Natural World. And I was looking at a collection of American-born women who wrote a lot of pieces that seemed to be focused on or inspired by nature, the natural world, and Libby Larson was among them. Them. So I interviewed all of those composers who were alive, um, which was six out of the nine. And when I got to Libby Larson, she was extremely generous with her time. And uh, we just clicked. This was way back, about 2008 or nine. Um, and we spent a lot of time just talking about our lives and the, the unusual number of um, kind of crossovers that we shared. Um, and one of the things that really uh, kind of solidified our um, comfort level with each other, our sense of trust with each other, was when we discovered we uh, were both mothers. Um, and we reveled in being able to talk about being mothers um, in a professional conversation, because talking about having children is just not something that um, professional women, especially women in academia, have had a chance to, to do very often. 
And so this was something um, that that struck a chord. And it turns out it struck a chord in both of us. I thought it was just me, but it, it struck a chord with Libby as well, that she was being allowed to be a professional woman who also had a personal life that she valued equally. Um, so that that book came out in 2013. And I was I was fine. That was lovely. And I really just had this warm spot in my head for Libby Larson. Um, when Lori Matheson from University of Illinois Press gave me the opportunity to write a biography, she came to me with some lists of names. And she said, yeah, think about writing on any of these people. And I got it down to a couple and uh, went through uh, kind of a all the reasons to write for this one, all the reasons to write for Libby. And um, everyone I read this list to said, well, you must write on Libby. It's obvious, but that's who you're drawn to writing about. Um, and so I, I listened to people and I, um, I followed their advice and I thought, well, now I need to go back to Libby Larson and ask her what she thinks about having her life written. Here she is very much alive, very productive, and it is a scary thing to have someone say, I want to write your life. Um, so I wrote her an email and told her this is what I wanted to talk with her about and uh, set up a time for a phone call. And I called Libby Larson. And I said, well, what are you thinking? about this. And, and she said, well, I have to tell you, uh, when I read your email that you wanted to write my biography, the, the first thing I had to do was get up off the floor. And um, that struck me as something that was unusual and something I really admired was that this person who had accomplished so much and whose music is being played somewhere on the globe, probably as we speak, has such a, a kind of a, a sense of humility about herself. She doesn't think of herself as Libby Larson, uh, colon, American composer. It's She's just Libby Larson. Um, and I really responded to that. Um, I don't deal with divas very well. And um, I, I was lucky that that it turned out I wasn't going to be dealing with one. So that's how this project started. Not this project, but an, an earlier one, which is a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> but that's where it began. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. That's very interesting. And that actually brings up uh, one of the questions I had as writing it, because it was clear from the introduction that you had struck up a um, friendship with uh, Larson and that she had cooperated quite a bit with you, both through doing a lot of interviews. And it uh, also sounds like she has kept uh, quite an archive of her work and her life um, throughout her, her professional life that you were of course, privy to. So I wondered, what what do you see as both the advantages and the challenges as a biographer of working with such a cooperative subject? Well, this is a wonderful question. And had this been the first biography, full-length biography I ever wrote, I think I would have had a very difficult time with her accessibility. 
But I had written another biography with Michael Broyles, and that one was on Leo Ornstein. We had an opportunity to interview Ornstein once before he passed away at the age of, I think it was 108. Um, And so we had access to him. But the person who was more accessible was his son, um, Severo Ornstein, a very accomplished man in his own right, um, as a... uh, a computer scientist, as a person who actually did help invent the, the internet, um, we had a lot of access to Severo. And Severo was interested in having his father's story written. Um, Michael Broyles and I spent a lot of time listening to Severo Ornstein's um, stories about his father, um, using the materials he presented to us. And we were sitting on top of a gold mine um, for quite a long time until we realized we were telling the story about Leo Ornstein through Severo Ornstein, simply because of his accessibility and the richness of his uh, archives. And we had to listen to other voices. We didn't want to be writing someone's story for them. Had I not had that experience, I don't think I would have been as cautious in assessing Libby Larson's accessibility or the richness of her archive or the convenience of this subject who is was always willing to take my call, always willing to answer my text. Um, I was all I was set to be um, questioning all the time that this obvious um, richness of material was also a potential trap that I would only be telling the story she was telling me. So from the get-go, I started looking out um, who has interacted with her, who are the people who've performed her music, who are the people who have commissioned her, who are the people who have written positively and or negatively about her. Um, and that's, an, that's another interesting um, kind of a, a sideline we could follow if we wanted. Um, so that the advantage of having the living, breathing subject there is magnificent as a fact checker, as a person who I can say, how does your sister spell her name? Um, Small things like that. Do you have a picture of um, how old was your father when he became the golden boy? You know, whatever. That's very um, exciting, very convenient. Um, It's also, I need to get someone else's point of view. And so I had to be more aware with this project than I've ever been before of my responsibility as a scholarly author to interrogate every piece of evidence that I was getting, every proof, every everything. I was always fact checking it two and three times to make sure I was not being um, just smitten by this productive, cordial, cooperative, accessible subject. Um, So both uh, and advantages and challenges. The archive that she has kept was not originally an archive for Libby Larson. It was an archive for the Minnesota Composers Forum. 
And that kind of um, step removed made it um, richer for me because she wasn't intentionally um, recording and archiving things about herself. She was archiving and recording things about this organization that she helped found with Stephen Paulus so that I could see her as a participant in this, not as the person who is historicizing herself. So that archive is richer than just about Libby Larson. If someone is doing a long-term project on Minnesota Composers Forum, which is now American Composers Forum, they can go to the Libby Larson archive and find everything that they would need. So that, that has, you know, it's a, it's a both hand kind of thing. Um, so I guess I want to start by um, digging into one of the things you touched on in your question, which was sort of um, kind of the reception of her music. What, what do critics think of her? Over the years, critics have, and this is a, a kind of a broad aerial view on uh, 40 years of critics' remarks, over the years, they have, um, as a group, I think, gone from being a bit patronizing, um, patting her on the head, local girl does well, um, to almost being wary of criticizing her because, as someone explained to me, she has so much power now. Um, and the power comes from her being behind the scenes, sitting on various boards, um, being the person who helps decide who gets scholarships from various um, foundations. And so I have found this a remarkable kind of um, trajectory where she withstood the most insulting kinds of patronizing criticisms. One time someone referred to her as a mascot. Um, they, they, of course, talked about her looks. Um, they talked about her trendy page boy, I think it was, which, of course, just follows what women have always been subjected to ever since they became public people, um, up to more today, more um, uh, critical assessments of her music and its power to speak, its power to communicate. Um, and this has taken decades um, to, to take place. Um, in the 80s, she is a very young composer, and that's when she is getting some of this rather patronizing um, criticism. And of course, there, it's coming from local people, because that's where she is being played. Um, at one time, someone said she needed to get off the bunny slopes and really try her, try her, you know, try her luck somewhere else, i.e. get out of Minneapolis and go to New York City. And 
Libby rejected the idea that New York City was going to be the place that determined her worth or anyone's worth as a composer or as an artist or as a playwright. Uh, Minneapolis has a tremendously vital arts scene um, and people in Minneapolis uh, don't feel they need the imprimatur of New York City. And Libby certainly is among that group. Um, so that's in the 80s. In the 90s, um, she is being accused of writing microwave music. That phrase comes from a professor at the University of Illinois who uh, was um, aesthetically opposed to music um, written with the idea that it, it should be played or that musicians, composers had social responsibilities. Um, it was an unfortunate altercation because it, there is a real aesthetic argument to be made about writing for, pe- for what people might like. Um, but it, the argument never was made because the criticism was so ad hominem. Um, now, today... It's hard to find someone who says anything critical about Libby Larson. Either they don't pay any attention to her music or they only say positive things. So it's a curious um, reception that she has she's experienced over the years. That is very interesting how it changed over time. And actually, your answer brought up all sorts of questions that I had, but I'll try to, to try to make them um, understandable in an understandable order. So the first thing that occurs to me is you talk to about how people see her as very powerful now. And that, of course, brings up how much how institutionalized classical music is. It's there's all these boards and um, uh, I don't know. Um, institutions that have money to give to composers. There's, of course, classical music in academia. There's um, uh, institutions um, like, I don't know, Guggenheim, these big granting organizations, all of these things, big symphony orchestras, opera companies, and so forth. And I'm wondering, how does she see herself in relationship to all of these different kinds of organizations? and institutions within classical music? I think she has a a very um, uh, complex relationship to these institutions. Um, She has not ever applied for a Guggenheim grant. Uh, She has not ever applied for any of these other big uh, imprimaturs. Uh, she's not nominated herself for a Pulitzer. Someone nominated her, but she has not nominated herself. And when I inquired, you know, why not? You are an unaffiliated composer, meaning you are living off of what you make as a composer. You don't have an institution, an academic institution supporting you, providing you with what those of us in academia just take for granted. You don't have that. Why wouldn't you go after these other big, big money things? And she said, I don't want to stand in anyone else's line. Meaning she is not going to wait around for someone to kind of knight her. 
and say, yes, you are worthy. She doesn't need someone else's approval. And that has been one of the most remarkable takeaways from writing her life story for me is the degree to which so many of us do stand in line waiting for someone else to tell us, yes, that's a good project. Yes, you are a smart person. Um, And we can wait years and it may or may not happen. And in the meantime, what are you doing? She's saying, I'm not going to stand in someone else's line. And so in that regard, she's somewhat hostile and challenging of these institutions. And it's, it, you know, she doesn't appear on the Guggenheim Fellows list or the Pulitzer Prize winners. She's not in the American Academy of Arts and Letters, though there are some people in each of those uh, who've, who've been honored by each of those organizations who you and I would never recognize the name of. Um, so that's one aspect of her relationship to institutions. The other side is of, of these relationships is that she has been asked to be on the boards of a number of organizations that give away money. Um, and these responsibilities weigh heavy on her. She doesn't want to be the person making someone else stand in line because she won't accept that for herself. She also thinks it's pretty amusing and not in a a kind of a cynical way, but just truly amusing that she is now one of those people who decides who else is going to get supported. So she works with organizations and with people who she believes have a genuine interest in cultivating American music culture and not uh, divas and not stars. She's not interested in the star making system, as far as I can tell, either for herself or for others. Uh, She is interested very interested in keeping American music culture vital and alive. And to that end, if she can sit on a board and and award a project that she thinks has the potential to do that, I think she feels very comfortable doing that. But she's not one to play up to or suck up to um, uh, power systems. So her her relationship is, you know, somewhat tortured, I think. So is that why she founded the Minnesota Composer Forum? I know she was co-founder of that and then ran it for for many years because it would seem that she actually um, created her own institution, so to speak. I think that's a wonderful way of, of reading it. She would she would perhaps, and I, I have to avoid always um, as the biographer, not assuming I'm, I can speak for my subject because she's very much alive and very willing to, to clarify anything I've said or correct anything I've said. But what her explanation of the Minnesota Composers Forum was to me was that the students at Minnesota realized they were being asked to write music for their composition assignments that got one hearing by a small audience of the initiated. They were writing for each other. She said, but that wasn't the music that we were being asked to write from the outside. 
choral works, anthems, um, little piano pieces, chamber works that were perhaps in tonal idioms as compared to what she was being asked to write a lot of while she was in school, um, which was perhaps more post-tonal or serial, but it wasn't that which the larger public wanted to hear. So part of the thinking behind the Minnesota Composers Forum was this group of students who said, we want more people to hear our music than are hearing it in the university, and we want to take our music out of the university. So one of the very first strong relationships they formed was with the Walker Art Museum in Minneapolis. And one of the Walker Art Museum um, executives was a founding member of the Minnesota Composers Forum. That person's name is on the the papers because the relationship that was most important to Libby um, and to Stephen, as I understand it, was not to stay inside the incubator of the university, but to get out of it. And so they created this forum that invited all composers in the area to have their works done. And it would be in a a venue that was accessible outside the university. It was going to be accessible to the whole community. These were going to be um, inexpensive concerts. Um, And they created a framework, as she explained it to me, that was like a symphony, And it was symphonic in that we expect a symphony to have certain characteristics, a certain form, if you will, a certain structure, but that within that basic structure, there was infinite room for variation, variety, growth, and change. And so she and Stephen Paulus kept thinking about this organization as a musical structure that had the capacity to be infinitely malleable. And I believe um, that the reason it has survived and just celebrated its 40th anniversary is because of that built-in flexible accommodation for growth and change. So it has changed dramatically over the 40 years of its life, but it has maintained that mission, which was to get people outside um, involved in music, to get more than one performance of something, to involve larger groups of, of people interested in music in American music culture. And that's, that was the Minnesota Composers Forum. So it, it did become a forum for herself, but that wasn't its goal. They never created it, as she explained, with the hope that this would be a place where they'd get their music heard all the time. It was a place where everyone could hear music outside the hallowed halls of the uh, academy. With the Composers Forum, they also created Innova Records because she realized that they needed some kind of um, uh, a document, um, some way to disseminate the musics they were encouraging outside the physical concert performance, and Innova Records started. And that continues still. So all of these um, initiatives that she had uh, with Stephen Paulus and with other of the students who were at Minnesota at the time were thinking beyond self and thinking beyond um, one's own promotion to this larger idea of how do you cultivate American music culture outside the incubator of the academic music department. 
Well, bringing up academic music departments, one of the things that struck me is that you spent a pretty long time in this book on one particular composers forum at the University of Illinois. Um, and it sort of stuck out stuck out to me because I don't recall anywhere else in the book where you spent so much time on just one moment in her life. And it was at a forum where she had a pretty um, uh, critical reception. And um, I, I was wondering, can you if you could tell us a little bit about not only that confrontation, but also why did you decide out of this long life she'd had, and I'm sure many composers forum and discussions with young composers, why did you choose this particular moment in time as being something you wanted to really look at closely? Oh, this is, this speaks to organization and just choices that authors have to make for a very long time. Um, I didn't know exactly how to organize this this book. I was suffering from an embarrassment of riches, um, to quote Sarah Orne Jewett, and I I looked at simple chronology. And, uh, of course, that doesn't work when you have a living composer, because most of the time when, when we read chronologically uh, oriented biographies, the, the person has born, lived and died, and you have this lovely arc, and you can say something summarial at the end, and that, well, that wasn't going to happen. Um, and then I thought, well, I'm just going to write it based on music, because she is a composer, um, and I want to just talk about pieces, because that's the way I always come at these projects is through having fallen in love over and over again with different pieces of music. Um, and so I kept trying um, to figure out how this story could be told um, most truthfully and most fully. Um, and I wasn't doing really well. I, I called up Libby Larson and I, I said, just tell me, what are the five or six most influential things in your life? Just tell me. And um, almost without skipping a beat, there was not a, a lot of pause. Um, she said, family, religion, nature and place, the academy, gender, technology. Just went boom, 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 boom. And I went, oh, okay. And I looked at the list when I thanked her and I hung up. And I looked at the list and I, I thought, these are my chapters. And within each of these chapters, I can um, work chronologically. I can talk about how those different topics tell her story. Um, in a truthful way, because this is what the composer has said. These are the most important things. I wasn't making it up. So that was one thing. The other thing was over the years um, of conversations, and you figure that I was interviewing her either starting in eight or nine, I can't remember, and going up through 16. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at, you know, eight or whatever years of, of talking with her. She kept talking about certain events. And the first one she talked about, it, it seemed to really um, influence her, was 
this confrontation at the dining room table as a child. And that became part of the Larson and family. That became the event there. Um, and it was all about her needing to be heard. Okay. And then she talked about the Vatican II, that that was another epiphanic event in her life. It was something that she knew was life-changing. When Vatican II took Latin out of her church, when they removed the Marian antiphons, when they removed the, the Mary celebrations in May, that just upended her because she was a child of Catholic parents, Catholic family. She had a bishop in the family. Uh, she went to Catholic schools, on and on. Um, and then she talked about two events at the academy. And the first was her performance, her, her opera, Some Pig, which she wrote as a master's thesis uh, work, which was being well-received by everyone. It was, I mean, and you figure she's 21 or 22 and she's having an opera performed in all the parks in the Minneapolis area. And the, the city park system has bought into this. They're putting on these productions and then it gets shut down because E.B. White says she didn't get the right permission. Well, she felt as if the university had left her out hanging um, and they, no one came to her defense and she ended up having to hire attorneys. Um, so that was her first thing with the, the, the academy. And then the second thing she mentioned was this composer's forum at Illinois. And this is something that has, I believe, changed her as much as the dining room table scene, as Vatican II, as the incident with some pig. This was... Um, a very personal attack that had to do with her belief that a composer's responsibility is to society, not to hold themselves up in an ivory tower, i.e. the academy or any other ivory tower, but to be of use to society, whether it be for pleasure, for entertainment, for edification, to help advance causes. And this is something she believes down to her toes. And I think part of it is from her religious training that music was functional. Music served a purpose. The music of the church was transporting. Um, the music that she was writing at that time occasionally was instructive. Um, Some Pig is about is the Charlotte's Web story. And we know how many millions of children have been affected by the story of Charlotte's Web. Well, so she thought her opera could do the same for children. And I understand from people who were there that it was brilliantly received. Everyone loved it. It was a, a great hit. Well, in 1990, she is invited to be a composer in residence at the University of Illinois. And she accepts this invitation, as would you or I, thinking that if someone is inviting you there, it is because they value your work. Well, it turned out that part of this residence um, included a forum. And I go into some 
uh, detail in the book describing the physical conditions of this forum. Um, and I get this description not from Libby, uh, but from Bill Brooks, William Brooks, a composer who was chair of the department um, at the time at Illinois. And he said, yeah, it was something like, uh, you know, an arena where you'd have um, the, uh, the subject in the center of a stage that was down from very raked chairs that are up. Uh, around it and a single light over the top of them. Well, it sounds like, you know, an interrogation room. And as a matter of fact, that's what it was. Um, And rather than uh, want to hear about her successes and her values, she was immediately um, made to feel very defensive about her belief that composers write for public. Um, they don't. They shouldn't just write for each other. Um, that there's something almost immoral about that. That, that they're not serving um, the purpose that they should serve. And so she tried, as Libby does, to explain. She's a very rational person. Um, she had considered going into economics, and she has a real sense of logic and reason, and because A, then B, uh, because B, then C, that kind of thing. And so she is listening to these critiques and trying her best to answer until she realizes that that that's not really what is happening. No one wants to hear her talk about why she believes what she does about a composer's role. And so then things got very ugly. And as Bill Brooks said, he thinks it was probably among the worst of those forums. He said it's hard to remember hers in particular because they were all this way. Um, and a, a student, Elizabeth Hinkle Turner, who a student at the time, who was very generous in talking with me about this whole environment and this whole academic environment and that particular um, residency of Libby Larson's, said, oh, it, it was just hostile. And that at the end of it, she said, we all left just knowing something horrible had happened. Well, um, Libby um, left there um, not really knowing what had happened, just knowing she had been broadsided. And um, once again, um, like with some pig, um, she was you know, instructed, you really should get yourself an attorney because this was so far beyond what is acceptable, especially in an academy where we're, we pride ourselves right, on, on um, reasonable conversation and public discourse. Um, But uh, Libby said that she thought about a a lawsuit um, for defamation of character, for all kinds of things, Um, but that that was going backwards and that what she could do was just go forward, uh, go onward, and use that lesson to never have it happen again. With that um, kind of lesson learned, I wanted to spend a lot of time with that incident, not because I think Illinois, University of Illinois, was so 
unique or egregious or so different from what was happening in other um, academic settings at the time, because it wasn't. It might have been more extreme, but the same kinds of uh, dismissal uh, were happening with women, with minorities regularly, with people who weren't, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid of what the most recent, uh, what the, the most acceptable compositional style was, whether it was electronic music or um, writing in a particular harmonic idiom, whatever. And I thought that that incident formed the adult Libby Larson, where the dining room table set her on a path, insisting on being heard, and where Vatican II made her think that maybe the church wasn't the place where she would find spiritual nourishment. And in fact, what the church caused her to do was to go to nature, to look to nature for a more a spiritual um, and un- understanding of, of her place in, in the world. Um, and what some pig taught her about the academy maybe not being the place where you would be protected. I think the incident at Illinois just solidified her. It, it was a very adult experience. It changed the way she interacted. And it also, I believe, reinforced what she um, felt a composer's job was, because this shook her completely. Um, and she really had to sit back and say, you know, am I wrong? Should I not be concerned that People want music to play. They want good, solid, well-crafted music to play, music that maybe gives them pleasure, music that maybe makes them think. Um, Should I not be worried about that? Should I just be writing for other composers? And she came away from that experience, reinforced, I think recommitted to her belief that, no, a composer's responsibility was to their society that they were products of it, and they should reflect that in their music. They should try and and make the world a better place, as hallmark as that sounds. But I believe that 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 was a lesson that was was solidified for her with that Illinois experience. And so that's why I used it as the last of these very powerful personal experiences she had. And perhaps I spent more time there because, um, to allude to something else that you said earlier, the power of institutions um, is something that she has has been aware of her whole life. She calls them systems, you know, the family system, the church system, the academy system, um, the music system, the awards system. These are all institutions or systems. She's very aware of their power. And she has, um, over the course of her uh, 60, whatever, seven years, um, worked to create an alternative to that, that is not a closed system, it operates with different rules. And that is, you have to be working to um, write a music, to compose a music, to make a music that has some kind of social relevance, value, meaning, um, resonance. 
Uh, and so that's why I spent as much time as I did on it. But if you look at the book uh, more globally, you'll see that it is simply the, the fourth of a quartet of these very particular, very personal and meaningful uh, experiences she had. Um, one of the things that your uh, answer brings up is how the book was organized, and I found it a very powerful organization, one that I don't think I've seen in a in a biography before, but it uh, or a musical biography anyway. And I thought it worked very well. Um, and but one thing that um, has sort of you did have one chapter on it, but then I felt like not only ran through sort of as a subtext of the answer you just gave, but through the whole book was the influence of gender on her life. And the fact that she is a woman in um, classical music, which is not um, always welcoming or often really not welcoming to women composers. And um, this sort of, you know, you talked earlier about her uh, reception among critics was can be at times, uh, certainly early in her career, sort of um, dismissive. And I think there was a lot of underpinnings of gender about how she was uh, how she was attacked in that University of Illinois moment, and how institutions have often um, uh, didn't know what to do with her or were actually trying to push her out. And so, um, can you talk a little bit? more about gender in particular. I sort of positioned it in this question as being sort of a negative in her life that being a woman has often stood in her way. But I don't know that, um, I don't think that's really a complete way that she uh, or that the book presents it. So can you talk a little bit more about that, about her as a woman? Yeah, Um, this is a a very um, Interesting, and that's such a, oh, it's an overused word, and so it sounds weak, but I mean it, that it is interesting how gender has both manifested and directed her life, and how it has not. Uh, the degree to which she recognizes gender as a part of her life, and the degree to which she does not. Uh, when we first talked, Uh, years ago, um, she was very hesitant to call herself a feminist. Um, And part of that had to do with her reading of feminists as being angry and male-hating and um, anti-family and all of that. And I can understand, because she and I are the same age, we came through the, the um, initial second wave feminist movement at the same time, how she could feel that way. Um, that if you weren't really fists clenched, it seemed like you were not enough of a feminist. And so uh, back in 2008 or nine, she was not prepared to declare herself a feminist. By the time the book was pretty much written, she was completely in. There was just no question about it. And part of it was um, that that almost decade of of life that she had lived. Uh, she has a daughter. She's watched her daughter, who is an attorney, the, the kinds of resistance her daughter has experienced, even though now law school admissions are pretty much even. It's, you know, the admissions tell one story, the, the practice in the classroom tells another. And so I did not start out writing this book thinking that it was going to be um, a book about gender because it wasn't. It wasn't the Libby Larson that I had met. 
And in fact, the first story that we had just talked about with her at the dining room table and, you know, her family trying to silence her, she never read that as gendered. She read it as simply a sign of the larger norms, the larger society at the time, which was gendered, but that's not how it was talked about. It was patriarchal. And it was, of course, your dad ran the dining room table conversation because he was the dad. Um, And it didn't matter that there were five daughters and his wife there. He called the shots. He determined the order in which people spoke, how long they spoke and what they spoke about. But she never talked about it as a gendered um, action on the part of her father or her family. It was just that's how society was. When... I started, you know, bringing her questions based upon what I was digging up. Um, I would say, did you ever think, of them? you know, here they're describing you with your trendy little page boy. And um, they, they said something about, I can't remember anymore, but it's in the book and it talks about fashion, um, the fashionable Libby Larson or something. Um, clearly, these are very dismissive comments and they would never be leveled against men. You wouldn't talk about the fashionable fill in the blank um, unless it was a woman. Um, I think she became more aware of the gendered um, actions that she had suffered as a result of looking back on her own life, but also living with her daughter at the time that her daughter is going through law school and trying to make it as as a young attorney. And so that being a mom kind of made her feel excluded at the front end of her career because she wasn't allowed to talk about wanting children or being, being a mom. And then it actually turns around and makes her a stronger feminist at the end by observing Winnie um, kind of work her way through 21st century American culture, which is still gendered. Um, We've made some strides, but it is still a place that treats women, especially women composers, um, differently. Surprised, you know, they're surprised when they hear that this strong piece was written by a woman. Um, I remember Joan Tower just talking about her piece Sequoia at one point and saying she just wanted to write the loudest, noisiest, bangiest thing she could um, because she just felt as if she, she had been trained, kind of um, brought up to think that, well, she couldn't. She had to she had to pull back on her tennis strokes because she didn't want to just show how powerful she was. Um, I think a similar kind of thing held for Libby in that it, it was so much a part, this gendered treatment was so much a part of the culture that you don't separate it out as gendered treatment. It's just the way things are. But as she's gotten older... It became more apparent to her that she was being treated differently because she was a woman and a very diminutive woman, too. And so that her size um, worked against her. I don't know if she's quite five foot and she's extremely slender so that she doesn't make a huge physical imprint when she stands on stage and she's very quick to smile 
and she listens very intently. Um, she, there's nothing aloof about her. She doesn't have the trappings of the, if there is such a thing, you know, a typical um, uh, self-possessed composer. She doesn't stand off to the side. She is, um, she is a woman who is also a composer. So the kind of um, gender threading through the text that you're picking up on, Kristen, I think is the way gender has threaded through her life. Um, and it wasn't to start off the book and say, this is a book about the gendered treatment of Libby Larson, and she is you know, symbolic of what happens to all women composers in the U.S. It, that wasn't where it started. It never was, and I don't think that would have been a true story. But it ended up being, this book tells us something about what it is like to be an American woman who happens to be a composer and who perhaps has the audacity to succeed. And that's part of what she deals with now is her audacity at having not played the game, not stood in line, not sought the approbation of awards, and she has succeeded, you know, kind of, that, how have you done that? Um, and she's just on her merry way. You know, thank you very much. I, I shall, I shall um, persevere. <laughs> and still, um, she, she persevered. Um, so it is about gender, but it's not, that was not the argument I wanted to make, that this, her life wasn't what it was because of her gender. Her gender was a part of her life. So I have a million other questions, but we are starting to come to the point where we should wrap up. So I think I'm going to ask just one more question. I don't want to leave this interview without asking you about the music itself. She is such a prolific composer. Is there any way that you can tell us... Um, kind of describe her as a composer. I'm sure it's difficult with someone who's written as much as she has, but uh, how would, you know, if someone, uh, so I am asking you, but if someone asks you, describe Libby Larson's musical style, you know, how, what's your answer to that? Um, I want to borrow a phrase that was used to describe uh, Lou Harrison, who lived in the whole world of music. And I think that Libby Larson lives in the whole world of American music culture. She grew up in a household where her mom loved stride boogie. Um, her dad played amateur clarinet. Libby loved chant. Her piano teacher understood that she kind of enjoyed things outside the metric box, as it were, and so assigned her um, Japanese music. Um, bar talk, things where the meter is not going to be nice for answered by four. And so all of these influences are in Libby Larson. They are Libby Larson. And when she composes, she draws on all of them. There's not a single piece where all of them isn't present in some way or other. And so she lives in this whole world of American music cultures. She loves the sound of spirituals. You can hear that at times. She loves the um, A 
symmetry of many Asian musics. You can hear that at times. And, and Boogie, it's frequently in her music. She's not afraid of crunching dissonances so that um, minor seconds, um, tritones, sevenths, uh, ninths are regularly a part of her uh, harmonic vocabulary. And when you hear something that is neat and tidy in a tonal idiom that is working like in three, four waltz like, you know, you kind of zero in on that and you say, what is she using that to say? So her music for me as a child who also grew up with a mom who listened to AM radio, a father who loved to sing musicals, I was being trained as a classical pianist. Um, It speaks to me because I hear all these references. And while I don't feel like I am the owner of Boogie, I know that it's part of my culture. And I I appreciate that um, she's like a polyglot. A musical polyglot. And uh, so for me, it's it's very comfortable to hear all that. And it sounds like, too, from the music that I've listened to her, is that this idea that music can be challenging, but it should be accessible as well, um, is an important part of her style, particularly when we think about her being trained at a time uh, when, you know, a lot of composers were openly hostile to the idea that music should be listenable. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It was always a primary value of hers and of the Minnesota Composers Forum. They were not in the business of impressing their audiences or each other. They were in the business of writing music for the audiences. And there's a diff- that's a different um, responsibility and task and agenda. Um, she was never interested, as far as I could tell, in writing for six other specialists. Um, She was interested in writing for the group that asked her to write a piece. And it could be Nexus, the percussion ensemble. It could be a violin group. It could a string quartet. It could be a a violinist. It could be a vocalist. She loves language. She reads poetry. She knows poetry. And she hears American um, English with a particular acuity, a sense of its rhythmicity, a sense of its accent patterns. And I hear that in her music, too, even when she's not setting a, a text. I hear the presence of American English in that in that music. It, it is American, um, as whatever that means. It, it, it wouldn't be written by a, a French composer. It wouldn't be written by an Asian composer, whether that was a Chinese or a Korean or a Japanese composer. Um, it is very particularly mid-century and into the 21st century um, America polyglot. Well, why don't we start to wrap this up? And I want to ask just one more question, and that is, uh, what are you working on today? What can we look forward to to coming out from you in the next few years? Well, the same time I started my interviews with Libby Larson, I began a project uh, based on a a seminar I was teaching at FSU on music and institutions. 
this was spring of 2008. I work on things a very long time, Kristen. So, so I am not a person to, to do a project in two years. It's oftentimes a, a decade of, of thinking. Um, so right now I am working on the early years of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Music Awards and the way that foundation really set um, the rules for institutionalized philanthropy in this country. They, of course, give awards beyond music, but the Guggenheims were most interested from the beginning in music and art. And so those awards in particular um, held a, a deep and profound place in their hearts. And so I am working on this study that looks at 1925 through 1940, the first 15 years of the organization, and actually the year before as they were figuring out how to do this organization, um, and seeing how that institution, by picking the winners, um, impacted American music culture. So that's the one big thing that I'm working on. I'm also working on a, an article on Anaya Lockwood and um, her piece, The Hudson River Sound Map that she created in 1983. And um, a graduate student at FSU, a geography graduate student, Mark Schuchetti, and I are working on a kind of an update, what a sound map of the Hudson River would sound like um, right now. Um, and uh, then, thanks to a, a symposium that I attended in Ann Arbor, Michigan a month ago, um, and attending um, uh, the archives uh, and coming upon a scrapbook of Al Abrams, where he had lots of pictures on the Supremes, um, I'm interested in working with some of my other symposium um, uh, colleagues in this Gender and Race Symposium um, on an article that looks at um, the way the Supremes were marketed um, in uh, the 60s and the power of the institution of Motown to um, actually produce the Supremes. And I don't mean produce as in produce a record, but to produce, to create them. So three very different projects, but that's kind of my MO, and that's why it takes me a decade to write the books, because I'm always doing other things simultaneously. Well, that all sounds wonderful, and I look forward to uh, reading and hearing more about that as, as time goes on. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about your book, and I, I hope that everyone who hears this will go out and read uh, your, your biography, Libby Larson, Composing an American Life. It is certainly written in a very accessible style, just as, as Larson's music is, and it's a fascinating book about a fascinating woman. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for this chance to talk with you, Kristen.